Alfred Gilbert is 24 years old when his younger brother becomes sick. Brother Gordon is the golden child, a scholar, an athlete, a musical prodigy in his second year at Oxford. Alfred, on the other hand, failed to get into medical school, but succeeded in impregnating his older cousin. He eloped with her to Paris, where he's studying art. Now, in the late summer of 1878, Alfred returns to London to be at his brother's side as tuberculosis, or consumption as they call it, overwhelms him. And when Gordon dies, in the fall, Alfred goes to Rome, gets an art studio, and begins to sculpt. He creates a tomb, a sarcophagus in the classical tradition, with a single figure atop it. He creates an angel in mourning, its head bowed. And then, from a large block of white marble, he carves a soldier, a Roman legionary, mortally wounded, falling back into the arms of an angel. He uses himself as the model for the Roman warrior, even though his body is a little heavy and his arms are a little short. Because it's convenient, but also because he can body his brother this way, if only for a moment. Exchanging places with the brother everyone adored. Gilbert spends three years making the sculpture of the warrior and the angel. And when he finally unveils it, in 1881, he calls it Kiss of Victory. A modern version of an ancient idea that if you die in battle, fighting the good fight, you will die a glorious death. You will be glorified forever. You will become, in a sense, immortal. This is the Object Podcast, produced by the Minneapolis Institute of Art. The Object is made possible by generous support from Ameriprise Financial, a proud supporter of the Minneapolis Institute of Art and committed to the future of art and culture in the communities they serve. Ameriprise Financial, helping people feel confident about their financial future since 1894. Today, the story of the eternal quest for eternal glory, and how our obsession with the hereafter has shaped our here and now. I'm Tim Gearing. You find yourself alone, riding in green fields with the sun on your face. Do not be troubled, for you are in Elysium, and you're already dead! (laughs) Brothers, what we do in life echoes in eternity. I hate it, Gladiator. Bunch of guys in sandals cutting off each other's heads. I couldn't believe it won Best Picture 21 years ago. Especially since the Academy, if you believe what they said after the slap at this year's Oscars, 
does not condone violence of any form. Well, whatever. Life is violent and always has been, in part because we can't get enough of it. It's like the Woody Allen joke about the two old women at a Catskills resort. And one of them says, boy, the food at this place is really terrible. The other one says, yeah, I know, and such small portions. We'd do anything to get a larger portion of life, right? We'd kill to get a larger portion. And we'd die. Let's go all the way back to the Iliad, about 700 years before Christ. There's Homer, right? If he even existed, sitting in Greece, writing this epic poem. More than 15,000 lines, just about the final weeks of the Trojan War, if that even really happened. And it's relentlessly brutal, right? Basically, Hector kills Patroclus, so Achilles kills Hector, so Paris kills Achilles. That's the plot. Slaughter and revenge. As one critic puts it, for long stretches, nothing happens except human beings killing each other. If one lacks a keen interest in this particular brand of homicide, the critic writes, the reading promptly becomes tedious. Except, to the Greeks, it's not tedious at all. Sure, everyone dies. But the decision to die, that's the drama. The Greeks have this word, kleos, which means a kind of ultimate, immortalizing glory, right? The kind of glory that goes on forever. And for most ancient Greeks, this glory can only be found on the battlefield. As Homer puts it, a glorious death is his, who for his country falls. But to get your kleos... It's not enough just to die, even in battle. You can't just take a blow to the head while you're bending down to tie your sandals. You have to chase after death. You have to run towards it, or no Cleos. Again and again in the Iliad, these guys have to decide if they're going to stay in the battle and die or go home and live. Hector's wife begs him to stay home, be a husband to her, be a father to their child, live long and prosper. But he leaves, right? Goes off to fight. Achilles, too, thinks, if I hold out here and I lay siege to Troy, my journey home is gone. But my glory never dies. If I voyage back to the fatherland I love, my pride, my glory dies. True. But the life that's left me will be long. The stroke of death will not come on me quickly. At one point, it seems like he's going to choose life. But no. Romans read this stuff and think, this is awesome. 
but they put their own twist on the glorious death. Rome, if nothing else, is a nation-state, right? Not just a bunch of individual heroes. And so, for the Romans, the glorious death is to die for the empire. It's the immortality of Rome that's celebrated, not you. The death of a soldier is pro patria in Latin, literally, for the fatherland. Well, it's a pretty short line from Rome to the made-up version of Rome in Gladiator, right? It's toxic masculinity all the way down. Tough guy stuff. Honor and respect and all that other sh**. Which is why we still can't have anything nice, even 2,000 years later. Except, that's not the only model of manhood on offer from the ancient Greeks. Achilles may choose to avenge his friend by killing Hector, but Hector doesn't actually want to fight. Hector first tries to cut a deal with Achilles, offers him Helen of Troy and all the treasure of every household in the city. And when that doesn't work, he runs for it. Achilles has to chase Hector around the walls of Troy three times before they confront each other. And then only because Hector has been tricked by the goddess Athena into thinking he'll have some backup. It's like Woody Allen said, right? I don't want to achieve immortality through my work. I want to achieve immortality through not dying. I don't want to live on in the hearts of my countrymen. I want to live on in my apartment. Which sounds normal. But crazy Achilles is the one who keeps being held up as the hero. There's an etching at the Minneapolis Institute of Art from around 1648. Achilles on his chariot, dragging Hector around after he's killed him. Which is brutal and not normal. And there's people in the etching watching this in horror. And yet, there's also this beautiful woman with wings. The personification of fame. Crowning Achilles with a laurel, like, good job. Not surprisingly, Alexander the Great is a huge fan of the Iliad. Hard to picture him curling up with a long reed, but apparently he sleeps with a copy and consults it often to get his courage up. He, too, takes away only the part he likes, the part that seems to justify his murder of several hundred thousand people, including his friends and possibly his father, believing he'll achieve immortality if he dies. This story gets repeated over the centuries like a game of telephone, right? Until all the nuance is gone, and you end up with something like the book Achilles and Hector, Iliad Stories Retold for Boys and Girls, from 1903. Or an article on the Art of Manliness website, explaining that Achilles has courage, and Hector does not, at least at first. That Hector has to learn that goodness must always be backed with strength. It quotes Teddy Roosevelt, of all people, saying, quote, 
Unless we keep the barbarian virtues, gaining the civilized ones will be of little avail. Great. There's a famous engraving from the 1400s called The Battle of the Nudes. There's a print at the Minneapolis Institute of Art. Ten naked guys wielding all kinds of violent, merciless weapons. Axes, swords, chains. Each man is about to slay the other. In the very next moment, not a single one of them might still be alive. Now, you can interpret this a couple different ways, right? Is this a throwback to the heroic days of ancient Greece and Rome? Look at these guys, fighting to the death without a care for their own protection. Or is it actually a kind of wry commentary on the insanity of it all? This obsession with honor and revenge that had become a medieval code. Keep it up, guys. And we're all going to die like a bunch of naked fools. You probably know the Monty Python sketch about the Black Knight, right? In the movie Monty Python and the Holy Grail. This medieval warrior won't give up even after his arms and legs have all been chopped off. I'm invincible! You're a loony. It's silly, right? But according to John Cleese, it's based on a true story, or something like it. This wrestler in the ancient Olympics who was losing badly, but was egged on by his trainer. What a noble epitaph, the trainer shouted. He was never defeated at Olympia. Well, the wrestler dies. But he collapses on his opponent in such a way that his opponent is in real pain and gives up before anyone realizes the other guy is dead. So, the dead guy is declared the winner. Sounds silly, but not to guys like Horatio Nelson, one of the most famous men in Britain, right? Nelson chases his Cleos around the world in the late 1700s, losing an arm in one battle and an eye in another. Life with disgrace, he says, is dreadful. A glorious death is to be envied. Now, Nelson has a wife and a mistress back on shore. And eventually, he has a daughter with the mistress, named Horatia. You are ever uppermost in my thoughts, he writes to Horatia, from the Battle of Trafalgar in 1805. But that doesn't stop him from strolling out on the deck of his ship, the Victory, in the midst of this major battle with the French and Spanish navies. Nelson always goes up top in the heat of war. And this time, he's shot by a French sniper. Nelson is dead at 47 and is stuffed in a barrel of brandy for the long trip home. His mistress ends up in a debtor's prison and his daughter becomes an orphan at 14. Let's skip ahead about a hundred years to World War I. A lot of artists in England 
poets, painters, sculptors are excited when war breaks out. They've been steeped in the classics, romanticizing war and chivalry. And a lot of them sign up, right? The soldier poets who go off to war to become heroes instead of just writing about them. Here lies a clerk, one poet imagines an epitaph, who half his life had spent toiling at ledgers in a city gray, with no lance broken in life's tournament. The clerk gets his wish. His, quote, waiting dreams are satisfied, the poet writes, and he dies in a blaze of glory. If I should die, writes another poet, think only this of me, that there's some corner of a foreign field that is forever England. Well, the poet does die in the war of a mosquito bite. Most Britons think the war will be over by Christmas 1914. Then they can all go home and cheerio with a glass of brandy. But of course it isn't, right? The war drags on for four years. The dead pile up in no man's land and the living return home without arms or legs. And for what? A few feet of dirt in some French forest. After the Battle of the Somme in 1916, with 60,000 casualties on the British side alone in a single day of fighting, the tone begins to change. The soldier poets want to go home. Return to me, one poet writes, colors that were my joy, not in the woeful crimson of men slain, but shining as a garden. Come with the streaming banners of dawn and sundown after rain. Suddenly, the battlefield looks not like Elysium or Olympia at all, but, quote, hideous landscapes, as the poet Wilfred Owen writes. Everything unnatural, broken, blasted. The, quote, unburiable bodies sit outside the dugout all day, all night, he notes. The most execrable sights on earth. And yet, he says, in poetry, we call them the most glorious. Pro patria mori, the ancient Roman phrase of dying for the fatherland, is just an old lie, Owen says. By the end of the war in 1918, with some 40 million casualties, the idea of the glorious death is dead. Remember Alfred Gilbert, the sculptor? He's 60 years old when World War I breaks out. His brother Gordon, cut down in his prime, has been dead nearly 40 years. But life has been good to Alfred, even if he's done little to earn it. He and his cousin have five children together. And Gilbert amazes the London art world with sculptures of heroes, real and imagined. When the commissions roll in, 
he plays the part of the celebrity artist. Roaming around London in a cape and a wide-brimmed hat and long cigarette holder without actually finishing much art. He works on one commission until the next one comes in, and so on. Until finally he abandons almost everything to spend five years creating something called the Shaftesbury Memorial, a monumental sculpture unveiled in 1893 in the middle of Piccadilly Circus. His patrons sue him. His wife has a breakdown And by 1901, Gilbert is bankrupt. He resigns from the Royal Academy. And one night, he locks himself in his studio and smashes all the models he made for commissions he never finished. And the next day, he gets on a train and flees England again. This time, he lands in Bruges in Belgium. He finds a mistress and he spends the next 25 years in exile. Until, one day, he's invited back. It's 1926. The war is over. People want beauty more than heroes. Gilbert, who sat out the war in German-occupied Belgium, is given a knighthood and a studio in Kensington Palace. The memorial he made in Piccadilly Circus, a naked god of love, winged and holding a bow, had ruined him. Why not pull down the whole work, he once said, and reduce it to copper? But now... In the wake of the war, the sculpture has become a beacon for returning soldiers. At night, the god of love is surrounded by prostitutes, leaning on the base of the sculpture, calling out to the men. And the men follow the women into the streets, fanning out from the circle and up to some room. Though they have not died a glorious death, They are the living dead, back from hell. And here, in the shadow of Gilbert's sculpture, they feel alive. This has been the Object Podcast. Produced by the Minneapolis Institute of Art and made possible by generous support from Ameriprise Financial. I'm Tim Gehring. You can listen to The Object on Spotify and Amazon Music and ask for it on your smart speaker. Wherever you listen, leave us a review and subscribe so you never miss an episode. And thanks very much for listening.